You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Uprise Radio and 3CR are produced on the unceded lands of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to all First Nations people tuning in today and acknowledge the work, resilience and wisdom of the elders of this land, past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Labor's Job and Skills Summit concluded last week, and although the agenda included discussions on so-called sustainable wage growth, job security, and the future of bargaining, it seems that there was a limited focus on the vast casualisation of the workforce and its associated risks to workers. Neoliberal economic policies over decades have eroded job security for many, stagnated wage growth, and targeted unions, and this has only been exacerbated by the pandemic. And while workers struggle, companies and their managerial sectors are recording huge profits. This disparity is no more apparent than in the tertiary education sector, where casual academics are experiencing overwork, wage theft and bureaucratic sleight of hand that allows this to appear as legal. I think the reason that Monash is refusing to pay teaching staff for the consultation hours that they hold is because the university has a fundamentally different definition of value. For the teaching staff at Monash, value is about the learning experience of our students. It's about maximising and facilitating the learning of the people that we are teaching. For the university, value is about money. It's about how much money they can make and about maximising profits. And so they maximise their profits by stealing our wages. Hi, I'm Sarah. I've been with the um, Department of Accounting and Banking and Finance at Monash now for goodness, you know, lately over 12 years, but overall probably 20. Um, All of that time, I haven't been paid for the consultation that I've provided with my students. And on my numbers, it's, you know, close to $60,000, which is an enormous amount of money. We had some really tight times during COVID. My husband lost his job on a single salary with mine. And so, you know, made me feel... I mean, not only financially impaired, but also felt very um, undervalued and underappreciated. Fortunately, the only saving grace is that the students were always so thrilled and happy and grateful for the things that we did for them. So it'd be time that the university actually recognises that as well. So we just heard there from Sarah and Tony, who are branch members of the Monash NTEU. And so joining us today is Ben Altham, President of the Monash Branch NTEU, to discuss their recent campaign to tackle widespread wage theft at the university and beyond. You know, Sarah echoes there a common refrain uh, in industries like education and nursing and childcare. You know, a lot of these industries that are currently um, fighting for a fairer wage um, 
where people often expect these people to work for the love of it, for those rewards from the people that they are helping to achieve their goals or grow up or get well or whatever. Um, you know, how difficult is it at the moment, uh, Ben, negotiating with universities? I, f- I feel like before the pandemic, you know, major universities were going to be the hardest hit of any of industries you know, through COVID, along with the arts, obviously. But it seems like, looking back now, uh, the fiscal outlook of Australia's biggest universities is actually far rosier than was initially expected. Like international enrolments only dropped marginally. I think it was 10% overall in 2020, and they're rebounding quickly. So, you know, what is the kind of... um, what are the main barriers to achieving, for example, the 4% pay rise that the NTU is fighting for at Monash at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Jackson, and uh, thanks for asking me on. So, uh, yeah, it's a multifaceted problem. Look, I think the first thing to say is that universities as a broad sector really were hit hard by the pandemic, and something like 35,000 people lost their jobs through 2020 and 2021. Uh, so I don't think we should minimise the the depth of the, the damage that the pandemic did and the extent of the job shedding that occurred in higher education during the last two years. Uh, you know, I think it's really important to say we lost so many comrades um, through that period and, and a lot of people um, really did do it pretty tough. Um, of course, universities were purposely excluded from job seek, uh, JobKeeper by... By Josh Frydenberg, by the Morrison government, very pointedly denied access to that wage subsidy. Um, But you're right to point out that for a subset of the bigger, richer universities, the pandemic didn't turn out to be such a bad bad event after all. So Monash University, for example, across the pandemic, the universities racked up an astonishing $1.1 billion in surpluses. Mm. It's quite amazing. Um, So not only... Did they not suffer any, you know, measurable hit? You know, they actually are recording a record surplus this year. Uh, the consolidated operating surplus for Monash University for 2021 was $416 million before tax, which is, you know, pretty good money in anyone's mm. terms. And how much of that is about this huge shift towards casualized, a casualized workforce rather than, you know, ten, tenured or ongoing full-time positions? And obviously, I mean, we're speaking today with Ben Eltham from the NTU at Monash about the fact that Monash now stands accused, as uh, Charles Sturt University was earlier this year, um, of very serious uh, and quite systemic wage theft. Considering the amount of money they have in the bank, considering the the payment to executives, um, you know, I think the uh, vice chancellor of Monash is on $1.4 million a year as a wage. Um, how do universities like Monash make the decisions that lead to um, mass casualization and mass wage theft? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a culture, actually, particularly in management. It's baked in. So they just don't take casual employees seriously. They're just not considered to be important parts of the university's operations. They're seen as a cost centre, as a necessary evil, um, as the disposable labour that the university can use, even when it sees fit. You know, the advantage of casual labour, of course, is that it is insecure, so the university can adjust its levels of casual employment to fit, you know, the levels of enrolments from students. Uh, so it gives the university a lot of flexibility. It's a great deal for the university. 
it's unfortunately a very bad deal for those casual employees because they don't enjoy really very many rights at all. They enjoy basically no security. And as we're now finding out, they've even had their wages stolen um, in a quite systemic way across a number of years across the university sector. Um, it's not just a problem of Monash or Charles Sturt. Uh, there's now been admissions of wage theft in 21 Australian universities. It's quite an astonishing figure. And I think that shows you that, that it's part of the business model. Uh, the, you know, this is, this is not just a couple of bad apples. This is the way they do business. This is how they can operate and rack up these big surpluses because they're not paying people properly. And Ben, I'm wondering on that, as you said, 21 universities across the country that have shown to be stealing wages from their workers. Obviously, at the Jobs and Skills Summit last week, there were negotiations around potential new policies with multi-employer bargaining. Um, What does this look like in terms of the tertiary education sector, you know, across these 21 universities? Are there any actions happening within those institutions as well? So I think that's a really interesting question, Sadies. Uh, So multi-enterprise bargaining could potentially be quite beneficial for the higher education sector um, because there's no doubt that, you know, enterprise bargaining, which happens institution by institution, does place the employees at a considerable disadvantage. I've been astonished, actually, or, you know, depressed, actually, is probably a better word, Mm. um, at the just how unfair enterprise bargaining is, seeing it up close. So as the union president, it's a voluntary role for me. I still teach. I've got a full teaching load this semester. I've got students in the classroom. I've got essays to mark. Uh, And the university essentially expects me to negotiate on behalf of thousands of staff Mm. and a wages bill of $1.4 billion, um, almost in a voluntary capacity, Meanwhile, of course, the university, it's a $3 billion institution. It's got an entire department of HR. It pays more than a million dollars a year in consultancies to employee relations consultants. It's got a law firm on retainer. You know, just it's so imbalanced in terms Mm. of the resources available to the negotiators for the university versus the staff. Mm. So it's not a very level playing field. It's really unfair. The other kind of really scary thing about it is, of course, that um, wage theft is illegal, right? It's unlawful under mm. Victorian law. It's now criminal, uh, a criminal offence under Victorian law. So the university has pursued this business model of not paying its staff properly. You know, that, that's got, in, in a sense, it's not got anything to do with enterprise bargaining because they have breached the enterprise agreement, right? So, they, mm. so the, the agreement that they themselves have signed and which all staff voted on, says that you have to pay staff at a certain rate and they've actually breached that agreement. So, you know, I think it shows that just uh, these big institutions genuinely think that they can get away with uh, not paying their staff properly and that the consequences for that underpayment are likely to be, you know, pretty mild. Uh, Mm. Obviously, no one's gone to jail yet for wage theft. It's quite a new crime in Victoria. But, you know, even in terms of at Monash University, they admitted to more than $8.6 million of wage theft across seven years in multiple faculties that affected more than 2,000 casual employees. No one's lost their job. No manager has resigned. No manager has even been disciplined or faced any consequences whatsoever. 
And it's partially about, you know, a total lack of teeth in the regulator. It's a little bit like the ACCC trying to regulate huge corporations. I think it's the Fair Work Ombudsman that's responsible for bringing wage theft cases into court and their budget compared to the budget of a university or even compared to the budget of like a restaurant giant like George Columbaris. You know, anecdotally, I've heard that the Fair Work Ombudsman prefers people to self-report um, and they give them a, a lighter uh, punishment because then at least they can get through the casework up against, you know, these monoliths that you're describing. I wonder, you know, I totally, uh, you know, feel your pain talking about the lack of options uh, for a union in combating, you know, considering the limited options that you have at your disposal in modern Australia. You know, you can only strike in very, you know, pre-arranged fashions, you know, with the agreement of the university, you know, you're curtailed by very stringent negotiating periods of time. And uh, there's all these kind of benefits to the, to the employer baked into the way that legislation works, it, it feels like. You know, we've just had a change of government federally, which, you know, Mercedes touched on there with the, um, with the workforce summit. I feel like, you know, there's this, and, you know, I, I know that you know, you write about Australian culture as well, uh, Ben, and about the media's role in Australian culture. You know, we are seeing, you know, this rising contest between people who have plenty and people that are really struggling. I think Sarah's at the start, you know, was suggestive of those people that are struggling. But you look to Labor, who historically have, you know, represented the battlers and their refusal to rescind the, the stage three tax cuts introduced um, by the previous government, you know, they seem they seem fairly intent and Albanese has seemed fairly intent on kind of eschewing any mention of class war. But the Morrison government and the Abbott government before that, you know, took very deliberate steps, you know, to change Australia's culture, I would argue, by keeping critical thinking out of reach of the struggling classes with their increase in humanities cost, keeping critical thinkers under pressure with the constant struggle to make ends meet, in sectors like arts, history, politics, do you think we can rely on Labor and Labor-backed unions to rebuild a vibrant kind of political landscape? Or is it just more seasons of the block with Scott Cam to come? <laughs> well, uh, so, I mean, I think you've, you've touched on some very big picture issues there and it's hard necessarily for me to cover them all. Um, so... I think you're right. There's a right-wing ratchet in modern Australian history, certainly since the Howard government. Um, let's remember that it was the Hawke-Keating government that introduced enterprise bargaining. Mm -hmm. um, there's an excellent book by Elizabeth Humphreys called, uh, how, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but it's about how about Labor's role in um, implementing yeah. neoliberalism in Australia. Um, it was Hawke and Keating governments that really neutered the power of uh, organised labour in this country. It was it never really recovered from the reforms uh, introduced by Hawke and Keating in the 90s. Um, and, of course, Howard then built on those with uh, work choices and, mm. um, you know, the brief interregnum of the, the Rudd-Gillard years, um, unfortunately, was not very helpful to, to workers and to organised labour. And um, we saw the result of that over 10 years of Abbott Turnbull Morrison, where real wages went backwards, where profits soared, uh, where the power of unions continued to decline. Uh, and we saw all of those cultural outcomes as well, uh, where, you know, um, universities had a lot of their funding for the humanities and arts courses cut and there were 
long-term cuts to arts funding places like the Australia Council and the National Collecting Institution. So big picture, it is a pretty bleak story. I am cautiously optimistic about a few of the sort of smaller changes that Labor is looking to implement under the new Albanese government. They're, they are tinkering at the edges and, and there will be some modest resetting of the industrial relations landscape. It will mm -hmm. become slightly easier uh, to organise workers and, and to campaign for better wages and conditions. But unless they completely rewrite the Fair Work Act, and there's no sign of that happening, then they're not going to redress the big imbalance between capital and labour in this country. So on the whole, I agree with you, you know, the neoliberal settings that we've seen for the last 30 years, uh, they remain in place and it's going to be a long and tough struggle uh, for people to, to try and fight back against those. We're talking to Ben Alton, the president of the Monash branch of the NTEU. Ben, just going back to what you were saying earlier, you know, um, in talking about wage theft, uh, with the Monash's campaign to tackle wage theft at Monash, two-part question, I guess, is what sort of mechanisms were the university using to allow this wage theft to go on or to not be held accountable until now? Obviously, it's a long-running campaign. And also, how has the managerial sector of the university responded to your campaign? Yeah, so um, if you look at how they did the wage theft, there's actually a number of different ways. It's pretty dark, actually. Um, you know, it certainly wasn't just an accident or just the way they always did things and then they happened to discover one day that this was not lawful. Um, unfortunately, it was pretty calculated. They got together with some pretty smart lawyers and they drove through some pretty cynical policies that ensured that thousands of workers were not paid uh, were underpaid millions of dollars. Um, so the one that they admitted to last year was a misclassification wrought. So what they did was they looked very carefully at the enterprise agreement and the way it was worded, and they saw that um, there was a certain pay rate for tutorials, right? And so um, there was also a slightly lower rate for things like workshops, practical classes, laboratory classes, and so on, things like that. So what they then did was they systematically went through the university's syllabus mm. and they changed all the tutorials to workshops, to practicals, mm. to laboratories. Mm. And then that, that enabled them to pay casual staff far less than they were getting paid for tutorials. That's very, and very deliberate. Very deliberate, very simple. Yeah, absolutely driven um, in, you know, is wage suppression in a very simple way. And, and what they admitted to, by the way, was simply a technical breach where they realised that after they'd done that in a number of cases, even after they'd checked with the lawyers, they still had managed not to, uh, you know, meet the black letter of what they thought they could get away with. And so they admitted to what we think is just the tip of the iceberg of a, a very widespread wage suppression strategy. Um, mm -hmm. Now... We're now bringing them to the federal court for another different type of wage theft this year, which they haven't yet admitted to, mm -hmm. which relates to consultations. So these are where tutors are meeting with students, for example, in a scheduled consultation. They turn up to a tutorial room. The students come, they talk about class or they look at their assignments or they do some coursework together. Now, in many, many cases, Monash is not paying casual academics for 
that time that they're teaching students for those consultations. And the university's excuse is, oh, well, it's part of the normal kind of consultation that you have to do as part of your tutorial class. But again, if you look at the enterprise agreement, um, that's a very dubious definition of, the, of what they're saying that they've done there. Um, the enterprise agreement says, you know, you're allowed to meet with students before and after class and you don't have to get paid for that. The university has used that wording to say, all right, well, we're going to schedule a completely different time and day of an hour over here on a Tuesday morning when mm. your class is on a Thursday. And you just have to do that. That's just part of what you do for your tutorial every week. And no, we're not going to pay you. So once again, it's very systematic. It's very targeted. Um, it's very purposeful. And we think it's millions of dollars and affecting thousands of casual staff members. And it's obviously affecting the casual workers and the academics, but also the students as well. You know, it's like if, if the workers are expected to be available to their students who I'm sure, you know, many of these teachers are teaching for that reason um, and not getting paid for it. You know, the, the students don't have the capacity to learn in, this, in the same way. Loss of words now. Well, I think the, the, tra <laughs> the tragedy of it, Mercedes, the tragedy of it is that these academics do do the hard yards. They actually yeah. do care about their students. Exactly. Uh, they, really, they really care about being the best teachers they can be and giving students the best classes they can and the best educational experience. And so they do it for free. They yes. go and do that teaching without pay, knowing that they're not getting paid. Uh, and, and, you know, that's the, that's the really cruel aspect of the university's policies. They're essentially asking casual, insecure teachers uh, to work for free to choose between the best outcomes for their students or getting paid. And I'm wondering, this might be a little bit of a stretch, but I am curious, you know, with the, the structure of the university geared towards STEM, there's military um, programs in universities now that I suppose how much of an emphasis is now on students learning for learning or developing pipelines and partnerships within the university that just channel students into uh, certain sectors or careers without getting the full breadth of what a university can potentially offer? There's still a lot of my members who passionately believe in public education mm -hmm. and mm. Um, the importance of, of education, uh, of a broad education in the, the arts and humanities as well as in science. So... Uh, but you're right to point to a culture of neoliberalism. Uh, it's been a long time since the university itself, I think, actually professed in a belief in education in it, you know, for its own sake and in its own right as a public good. Mm. And increasingly, we're seeing the university be completely happy to uh, get into bed with fossil fuel companies, for example, at Monash University. We have a, a new building called the Woodside Building. It's the result of a multi-million dollar sponsorship by the Woodside Corporation. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 it's pretty dark. The higher education is in a dark place in Australia, I'm afraid. Ben, can I ask a question about casual workers in universities and the push to maybe have less of them from the union's perspective? You know, I feel like, you know, some time ago we had a guest uh, on this show recount that at her first branch meeting, NTU branch meeting, she was told, uh, wasn't at Monash, that the union wasn't for her as a casual academic. And I think there's been, you know, some loud voices, um, you know, saying that perhaps historically the union hasn't 
um, done the best job of representing casual staff. And I think the way that the National Jobs Protection Framework was negotiated during the pandemic spoke to that a little. Do you think there's a shift occurring within the leadership of the broader union or is this uh, is this kind of new focus on the exploitation of casual workers and the growth of casual workers as an exploited group? Um, is that more of a result of campaigns like NTU Fight Back or, you know, whatever the I've only just heard today of this new NTEU, uh, you know, like what do you think is kind of occurring here? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. So I think historically the NTEU was a union for academics really mm-hmm. um, and and certainly if you go back 20, 30 years, conditions were a lot more comfortable in Australian universities. Um, academics had reasonably good conditions back in the old days and um, it wasn't a very militant union, you know, um, and so uh, as things have got worse, as exploitation has increased in the industry, as casuals have continued to be exploited, I think what's been really interesting is we've seen casuals start to organise and they've started to organise both amongst themselves as workers and colleagues, but they've also started to organise within the NTU and to demand better representation from their union leaders. And I think that's really positive. Um, The NTU is a democratic union. People can run for elections. We are seeing a contested election this year. Uh, so there's, um, you know, a couple of different tickets, if you like, <laughs> which are kind of like, I suppose, like mini parties or little factions, if you like, um, who are running um, to be the leaders of the NTU. Um, and there's open debate within the union about how best to represent all staff, but but including casual and insecure workers. So I think that's really positive. You know, will, will you be say- running in those elections, Ben? Uh, yeah, I'm so I've um, put my hand up again to be uh, the branch president at Monash again. So um, I I don't believe anyone is running against me. So um, I think I've uh, won that one by default. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I don't think there's too many takers for the for the gig of branch president. It's a bit of a thankless task. Um, but you know, like I, I think it's really good that um, within any union you have a democratic contest of ideas. You have lots of different members who are prepared to put their hands up and, and stand for election to represent their colleagues. So I think that's really positive for the NTU. Absolutely. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And it's been my pleasure. Yeah. It's um how how can we best, you know, get the word out to support what the, the campaign is or, you know, for students and, and staff alike. Um, yeah, there's a bit of social media around for the NTU, both nationally and also in Victoria. Um, watch this space. I think we're going to be um, announcing some pretty interesting things in coming weeks about our action against Monash, and I think that's really interesting. You're right to point out the Vice-Chancellor makes $1.3 million. They're a truly unaccountable elite Vice-Chancellors, but I think the tide is turning. So if we can get some public pressure against these plutocrats, we might get a bit of change. Thanks so much for coming on Uprise Radio, Ben. Thank you. This government had an idea and Parliament made it law. Seems like it's illegal. 
to fight for the union anymore And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Set off to join the picket lines, but together we cannot fail. We got stopped by police at the county line. They said, Go on, boys, or you're going to jail. And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Well, it's hard to explain to a crying child why her daddy won't go back. Said the family suffer, but it hurts me more to hear a scab say, Sod you, Jack. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Follow my conscience and I'll do whatever I can And it'll take much more than a union law To knock the fight out of a working man And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.